The new Super Beats Heart Chews Advanced is now supercharged with CoQ10. Support your healthy CoQ10 levels and blood pressure with two chews a day. Visit RadioBeatsBeets.com and save 15% with promo code DEAL. This Post Reports podcast is sponsored by the Association of American Railroads. New technology creates a smarter and safer freight rail network that is ready to meet the needs of tomorrow. Visit AAR.org. From the newsroom of the Washington Post. Hello, hey you. Here's Sinuiza back from the Washington Post. Washington Post, this is Wesley. It's Lori Aritani over at the Post. I'm good. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, November 19th. Today, week two of public testimony in the impeachment inquiry. Why political turmoil is erupting across Latin America and the growing threat of superbugs. I now recognize Ranking Member Nunes for any remarks he'd like to make. Thanks, gentlemen. I'd like to address a few brief words to the American people watching at home. If you watched the impeachment hearings last week, you may have noticed a disconnect between what you actually saw and the mainstream media accounts describing it. When you saw three diplomats who dislike President Trump's Ukraine policy, discussing second-hand and third-hand conversations about their objections with the Trump policy. Right now, we have had three career diplomats with collectively dozens of years of experience testify on nationally televised hearings before Congress. Bill Taylor, Marie Ivanovich, and George Kent. And what's significant about these diplomats who have testified so far is that they all are in their jobs because of their expertise in Ukraine matters. They are nonpartisan and they work for, you know, Republican administrations, Democratic administrations. They don't leave when a new president comes in and they follow the policies of of that administration. I'm Lisa Rhine and I cover the federal government for The Post. These career employees are kind of a Rorschach test, whether you're a Democrat or a Republican. Because by being nonpartisan and by swearing an oath to serve the Constitution, the career people are really telling lawmakers how they see things and basically how this kind of shadow foreign policy that President Trump and his allies were conducting was out of the norm. During impeachment proceedings against Richard Nixon and Bill Clinton, the major players were all appointees and aides. But this time, many of the characters at the center of the inquiry are career bureaucrats, civil servants, and professional staff. I think that the career people are are really relevant only because they didn't ask to be in this situation. They were not whistleblowers. They were not the original whistleblower. They were subpoenaed. They were told by their supervisors at the State Department not to come testify. So these diplomats and other career officials have enormous potential to face retaliation. Marie Ivanovich, the former ambassador to Ukraine, who has testified in open hearings, said that she felt threatened several times by President Trump, and she is still a State Department employee. She's going to go through some things. It didn't sound good. Uh, It kind of felt like a vague threat. And so I wondered what that meant. It concerned me. They could face threats to their security clearance renewals. The government could hold those up. They could be reassigned. They could be removed from coveted national security details. 
And yet they are still coming forward to testify in nationally televised hearings, which has got to be a pretty scary prospect. But they swore an oath to the Constitution, and each of them has said that they feel that the, the country's national security was at risk in the Ukraine matter. Lisa Ryan covers the federal government for The Post. This is the third in a series of public hearings the committee will be holding as part of the House of Representatives impeachment inquiry. So public hearings in the impeachment process resumed today. And it was all about the phone call that started the impeachment inquiry in the first place, this phone call between President Trump and President Zelensky on July 25th. The morning testimony has now wrapped up. Who did we hear from this morning? So this morning we heard from Alexander Vindman, who uh, handles Ukraine on the National Security Council. On July 25th, 2019, the call occurred. I listened on the, in on the call in the Situation Room with White House colleagues. And Jennifer Williams, who was an aide to Vice President Pence. On July 25th, along with several of my colleagues, I listened to a call between President Trump and President Zelensky. I'm Shane Harris. I cover national security and intelligence for The Post. And these days I cover the impeachment hearings. So here we had two firsthand witnesses to what was said who then shared their reactions to the exchange between the two presidents. And what were their reactions? Well, both of them thought that it was either inappropriate or certainly unusual. During my closed-door deposition, members of the committee asked about my personal views and whether I had any concerns about the July 25th call. As I testified then, I found the July 25th phone call unusual because in contrast to other presidential calls I had observed, it involved discussion of what appeared to be a domestic political matter. I think that Vindman's reaction was a lot stronger. Uh, he said, what I heard was inappropriate. Those were his words. I was concerned by the call. What I heard was inappropriate. It is improper for the president of the United States to demand a foreign government investigate a U.S. citizen and a political opponent. Vindman perhaps going a little bit stronger than Williams, but Williams by no means saying this was perfectly normal uh, and was not concerning. And Vindman said that he was concerned that if this military aid to Ukraine became a political issue, that it wouldn't get bipartisan support from the U.S. and that it might not be provided to Ukraine in the future. It was also clear that if Ukraine pursued an investigation into the 2016 elections, the Bidens and Burisma, it would be interpreted as a partisan play, undoubtedly result in Ukraine losing bipartisan support undermining U.S. national security and advancing Russia's strategic objectives in the region. I mean, he very much believes in the policy, which is a bipartisan policy officially supported by the Trump administration, that it's necessary to provide military aid to Ukraine in their efforts to deter Russian aggression, and that by making this contingent on political investigations would send that message to Ukraine that we weren't behind them, that we weren't supportive. Uh, and, you know, members spent a lot of time trying to, you know, get to the, to the root of this as saying that this is somebody in Vindman who has, you know, his whole portfolio is Ukraine. He speaks Ukrainian. He has a Ukrainian background. He gets this policy a lot. And I think they were trying to use him as saying, look, when the people who are on the front lines of implementing this policy raise the red flag and say, but what the president is doing jeopardizes that policy, that people should take that seriously. 
So a lot of what we heard from their testimony today, we had had a pretty good indication of before from their initial depositions on Capitol Hill. But one small issue that was brought up that I think was new to a lot of people was this issue of the rough transcript of that call and whether that rough transcript is actually an accurate transcript. Right. This is very interesting. Because Vindman is asked about whether or not what he is reading in that uh, that that memcon or the telcon telephone conversation memo is, as he recalls it, what was said word for word between the two presidents, and he says no, there are some omissions. The most notable one being that, as Vindman recalls it. Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, specifically used the word Burisma, which is the company, of course, that Joe Biden's son had a board position on and that Donald Trump wanted an investigation of. Now, he says that the word Burisma was used. The word Burisma, of course, doesn't appear in the version of the the memo that the White House releases. I think it's a reference to that company or the company. It's more generic. And for the record, Williams also said that she heard the the word Burisma during that phone call as well. That's right. So Williams backs up the account. So you have two people who were on the call who say, I heard President Zelensky use the name Burisma. Both of you uh, recall President Zelensky in that conversation raising the issue or mentioning Burisma, do you not? That's correct. Correct. And yet... The word Burisma appears nowhere in the call record that's been released to the public. Is that right? That's right. Correct. That is important in Vindman's view because it suggests that going into the call and the way that it was said and the time it was said in the conversation, that President Zelensky already understood that Burisma was on the agenda. Uh, And so it would suggest, as he said, that he may have been prepared for the fact that this would be something that Trump and he would be discussing. I think that is suggestive, and there's been quite a lot of reporting around this in recent days, um, supports this idea that the Ukrainians understood there was pressure on them to investigate Burisma, not corruption in general. And that's a very important distinction because the White House's defense of this call and the Republicans on the committee's defense of it has been Donald Trump is worried about corruption writ large. The counterargument to that is no, Donald Trump is interested in investigating Burisma, just this company, and whether there was a problem between uh, with them having Joe Biden's son on the board. And Vindman would seem to back up that latter interpretation that Trump was interested in Burisma and not in corruption throughout Ukraine. So these were some of the issues that were raised by Democrats who were doing the questioning. But then when it turned to Republicans, we saw something that was kind of interesting because at least when it came to the testimony that we heard last week, it felt like Republicans were very leery of of trying to offend the witnesses or trying to make them look look bad that they were on on that they were by and large like pretty respectful of the career diplomats that we saw testifying last week. But today, they really went in on Vindman and started to question whether he was a reliable witness. Yes, they questioned first whether he was a reliable witness, uh, and then they questioned, frankly, whether he was a loyal American. I'm an American. I came here when I was a toddler, and I immediately dismissed these offers, did not entertain them. There was a line of questioning that went to a conversation that Vindman had with the then national security advisor of Ukraine, who he says in a way that he took as sort of a joke or not very serious, offered Vindman a job as the defense minister of Ukraine. Did you leave the door open? Was there a reason that he had to come back and ask a a second and third time or was he just trying to convince you? Uh, Counsel, you know what? It's the whole notion is is rather comical that um, I was being asked to consider 
whether I'd want to be the Minister of Defense. Uh, I did not leave the door open at all. Okay. But uh, it, it is pretty funny for a Lieutenant Colonel in the United States Army, which really is not that, not that senior, to be offered that um, illustrious a position. As, and he says in the context of it, it didn't seem serious and even says, look, I'm a lieutenant colonel. That's a pretty low position. It'd be kind of unrealistic to think they'd offer me such a job. But nevertheless, I reported that up the chain of command, documented it as this interaction with a foreign government official. He did everything by the book. And Republican lawmakers were seeming to seize on this to sort of say, are you sure? I mean, did you really – did you take it seriously? Did you think about it? And this is something we've seen coming up in previous criticism you know, of, of Vindman who came to the United States – from the Soviet Union as a toddler with his family and raising the question of whether he, in fact, has some kind of dual loyalty. Now, it's a legitimate question to say, did you properly report an offer of a job from a foreign government? But that's really not the line of attack that Republicans were taking here. This prompted a lot of Democrats to then come forward and note um, that he is a decorated combat veteran who has been wounded in battle and his, in his obviously currently uh, in, in the military, you could tell by his uniform. The three minutes that were spent asking you about the offer made to make you the Minister of Defense. That may have come cloaked in a Brooks Brothers suit and in parliamentary language, but that was designed exclusively to give the right-wing media an opening to question your loyalties. So it was a really fascinating exchange to see the Republicans essentially trying to say, you know, can we trust not just what you say, but can we trust your commitment to the United States? And it was clear that Vindman was even starting to take offense at this. At one point, Representative Devin Nunes called him Mr. Vindman. Mr. Vindman, you testified in your deposition that you did and not. And Vindman interrupted him and reminded him. Uh, rank member, it's uh, Lieutenant Colonel Vindman, please. Uh, Le- Lieutenant Colonel Vindman, you testified. That's right, he did. And that was in a very deposition. tense moment. So what is the takeaway from today? Like, how much does this testimony change our understanding of what transpired and whether that could be an impeachable offense? What I saw in this really was the the increasing partisan tension around these hearings. I mean, when you have Republican members of Congress, you know, questioning the patriotism of someone sitting before them in a uniform. That's a pretty remarkable event. That doesn't happen very often. And you could really see the way that the partisan lines are just being drawn here even more starkly um, to the point where even firsthand witnesses, when the Republicans have been saying we have no firsthand witnesses, well, you have two of them right here, um, even their credibility and other aspects of their character are being questioned. I think what this shows you is that, and we kind of knew this, but in case you doubted it, this is going to be even a bigger partisan fight than we've even seen now. The nature of this as a spectacle uh, and I think as a partisan brawl um, is clear, and those tensions and those stakes are only going to go up. Shane Harris, thank you so much. You're welcome. You know, it's really a remarkable moment. It's been decades since we saw this level of social unrest. And it's really everywhere from Haiti, the poorest country in the hemisphere, to Chile, which has been a symbol of economic success in recent decades for Latin America. We've had an uprising in Bolivia, in Ecuador, a situation where protesters 
effectively chased the government out of the Capitol. Discontent has bubbled over. People have taken to the streets, really, in so many countries. Mary Beth Sheridan covers Mexico and Central America for The Post. In the past few months, political turmoil has been escalating across Latin America. And while the circumstances of this unrest are different in each country, Mary Beth says that there are some commonalities in what is driving people to protest. One of the things that we really see affecting the region is the economic slowdown. From around 2004 to 2011, on average, economies in Latin America were growing 4% a year, which is really pretty robust. So basically, that was because of rising prices for commodities like farm goods, oil, minerals. So these countries had money to spend more on social programs, more on subsidies, et cetera. And now we're in a situation where uh, the prices of a lot of those goods, you know, oil is the obvious one, has really gone down. So governments don't have the um, resources and they have had to cut back. And what you see with the economy slowing is um, a lot of anxiety on the part of both people who had newly, you know, arrived in the middle class and, of course, people who are poorer and less well off. So there's just a tremendous amount of frustration going on. So let's start with Bolivia. What has happened there? So the uh, three-term president, Evo Morales, ran for a fourth term in elections on October 20th. Now, he had done that despite the fact that he had organized a referendum and asked the public, would it be okay to run for a fourth term? And, And he lost that referendum, but he ran anyway. He got a court order saying he could run. So he won the election. But there were so many allegations of fraud and irregularities, and and the OAS, the Organization of American States, uh, put out a report really documenting a lot of the problems. So demonstrators filled the streets. And the police and eventually the army turned against Morales, and he wound up resigning and fleeing the country. So, So was this a coup? That's an excellent question, and it's really been something that's galvanized Latin America. People all over are debating the question. People who support Morales say that the fact that the military publicly went out and suggested he leave power was improper and that the military shouldn't be interfering in the political process in a democratic country. The people who are critical of Morales say, well, okay, he had offered to redo the election, but how could you trust a leader who had overseen a a truly fraudulent election. And effectively, um, he'd lost the support of so many Bolivians and institutions, including the police. So they would argue that there wasn't really a way to work within the traditional institutions to fix the problem. So I think it's really a question, how you see it depends on whether you view the institutions as capable of having coped with this crisis. And after Morales arrived in Mexico City, you actually had the chance to talk to him. What did he have to say about all of these events? So it's really an interesting moment because uh, Morales was granted political asylum in Mexico. But it was clear to me that he still very much wants to maintain his influence in Bolivia. He's still quite popular, particularly with a lot of the indigenous communities in that country. There's a sizable indigenous community. Just to be clear, are you thinking that the assembly could reject your resignation and that you may try to return as president? And 
And while he resigned, he's saying that it's up to the Congress of Bolivia to decide whether they accept that resignation or not. His party has a two-thirds majority, so it's, of course, entirely possible that they will reject his resignation. You have an extremely polarized situation now in Bolivia. His departure meant that, you know, his own senior party officials, several of them also resigned. And so what you had was a uh, conservative senator asserting that she was the next in line to run the country on an interim basis. But it's been a very sharply conservative agenda that she's pursuing. And so there's been just tremendous demonstrations and and violence as the two sides have clashed. So we've also been seeing demonstrations in other Latin American countries. And I'm wondering if you can just run through the list of the countries that are facing this kind of unrest and generally what people are concerned about. Like, is it corruption the way that people were concerned about corruption in Bolivia? Well, it's, you know, each country has its own dynamic, I would say, and and can't really apply a general script. One thing I would say, though, so you look at countries where demonstrations have been going on. You have Chile, which it was, uh, those were sparked by an increase in the subway fare, but really became a big movement focused on inequality. In Peru, you had a situation where the president got into a conflict with Congress and wound up basically dissolving Congress with with great support from the public, by the way, because they viewed the Congress as corrupt. You had Ecuador, where again, there was a move by the government to cut subsidies, fuel subsidies, and that triggered very large demonstrations and the need temporarily to move the capital because there were so many people on the streets. You've had uh, Haiti, where demonstrations again were linked to the rise in the price of fuel, but they became bigger because of concerns about corruption. Those are just a, you know, just a handful of the ones that have occurred. I would say that overall, you're looking at a moment when the economy in Latin America has slowed quite a bit, but also you have things like social media, you have more civic groups, you have a freer media in Latin America. So people are less tolerant of corruption or or a perceived idea that the elite is doing okay while the middle and poorer classes are absorbing the brunt of the cutbacks. So when you look at all of this unrest happening across Latin America, does that have some kind of ripple effect throughout Latin America and, and even through the rest of the world? Well, I think there's different kinds of ripple effects. One would be migration. So, for example, you have seen a surge in migration from Honduras towards the United States. Clearly a very different context, but you see in Venezuela massive out-migration, which is is really a result of the collapse of the economy, I would say, as well as, to some extent, repression. I do think one of the effects beyond these, you know, what's going on in these individual countries is that Latin America becomes increasingly polarized. And I do think it's going to be more difficult to have consensus to solve regional problems. For example, you know, the U.S. had been working pretty closely with a number of Latin American countries to try to find some sort of solution to the Venezuelan crisis. As you increasingly have countries divided by ideology, and and in some cases countries that are moving further to the right or or more to the left, it it just becomes more difficult, I think, sometimes to work together to, um, to solve problems in the region.
Mary Beth Sheridan covers Mexico and Central America for The Post. This Post Reports podcast is sponsored by the Association of American Railroads. New technology creates a smarter and safer freight rail network that is ready to meet the needs of tomorrow. Visit AAR.org. And now, one more thing from health reporter Lena Sun about superbugs. That is a generic term that I think people can understand, but what it really refers to are bacteria and fungi that have developed the ability to fight off the antibiotics, the drugs that we used to kill them. And so these bacteria, these bugs, have become super powerful in that they can make you sick and die, and we don't really have any medicine to treat you. Earlier this month, the CDC came out with a long-awaited report on the threats posed by drug-resistant bacteria and fungi. And it found that it's actually worse than they previously thought. 2013 was the first time they did a snapshot, and they said, oh, look, 2 million people get sick, 23,000 people die a year. From pathogens that are resistant to antibiotics. Yes, yes. And it was the first time they had done sort of a snapshot. But it was very conservative. And then over time, they have gotten better data. So they came up with a new report last week, and it found that in 2013, twice as many people were getting sick and twice as many people were dying. So up until now, they've been underestimating the impact of these superbugs. And only now are they realizing just how huge of a problem that they are. Exactamento. Most of these bacteria have incredibly long names. Carpabenum-resistant acinetobacter, extended beta-lactamase ESBL-producing drug-resistant gonorrhea. Everybody knows what gonorrhea is. Erythromycin-resistant group, the nightmare bacteria. Carpabenum-resistant enterobacteriaceae. The other new germ that was added to the urgent category was a deadly superbug yeast called Candida auris. And that has really flummoxed public health officials around the world because it just showed up on several continents at the same time. What kind of germ or bug is it? Like, what does it do to you? Is it kind of like a cold? No, it is much more serious than a cold. It can kill you. And it is very hard to detect. And it can live for a long time on surfaces, and it spreads very quickly in hospitalized patients. And when it arrived in the United States, people did not know what it was, and they've discovered it, and now it has grown rapidly. And it's happening to people now, and people are getting sick and dying now. It's not like 20 years down the road. So why are these superbugs becoming more prevalent and and getting harder for doctors to deal with? Part of it is evolution of superbugs, of bacteria and fungi. They're very smart and they outsmart us. Part of it is you and I are going to urgent care clinics every time we get sick and we are expecting or demanding that we get antibiotics, whether antibiotics will work or not. So if you have the flu or you have a cold, 
Do not be going to the doctor and asking for a Z-Pack because you know what? I do not want to have a bug that's resistant because you are asking for it. And you shouldn't even be asking for it. And doctors shouldn't be giving it to you. But in this day and age, doctors have patient satisfaction scores they need to please. And they know that here you come, they give you an antibiotic, you will be more happy with them. Out you go. In comes the next patient. Up goes their bottom line. Lena, thank you so much. You're so welcome. I'm sorry I don't have better news. Lena Sun is a health reporter covering infectious diseases for The Post. Um, okay, so let's do the credits. That's it for today's episode. Thanks for listening. And right now, I'm at the Tyler Perry Studio in Atlanta, Georgia, where The Washington Post and MSNBC are co-hosting a debate on Wednesday night, the next Democratic presidential primary debate. And right now, I'm standing in front of the stage where it's going to happen. So the debate is airing at 9 p.m. You can catch it on MSNBC or on WashingtonPost.com. And then shortly after that, we will have an episode of Post Reports, an extra episode with Washington Post reporters here covering the debate, recapping all the big moments. Until then, I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. This Post Reports podcast is sponsored by the Association of American Railroads. New technology creates a smarter and safer freight rail network that is ready to meet the needs of tomorrow. Visit AAR.org.